This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So good morning, Dharma brothers and sisters. It's good to see all of you. So it's an honor to be here and, and, and give this talk. Giving Dharma talks are an important part of my practice. The struggle to get some words together is always helpful, though sometimes difficult. Sometimes I wish I were more like Bruce. He's, he seems to make words go together so easily. <laughs> so my talk today is about silence. It's one of my favorite topics. I was thinking about how uh, so often you hear in this uh, spiritual world that you know, how, how humans, and not just the spiritual world, but everywhere, that human beings are very addicted to a lot of noise. We're addicted to language. We're addicted to words. We, you know, the words are, we feel very, very critical to, to our lives. But yet, have you ever thought about how there are a lot of species out there that seem to do just wonderfully well without words? I was thinking that a a time that Sherry and I got to watch some night herons building a nest together. It was a couple. And one of them, maybe I assumed it was the male, but that's not necessarily true, was carefully placing little sticks in, uh, in this nest. And the female was right beside him and she had a stick in her mouth and she was handing it up to him or mouthing it up to him. And uh, he was place that stick and you had to kind of imagine that he was saying hey babe time for another stick and she was saying hey don't put that there put it over there this whole nest is going to come crashing down uh, but no no they did all this in in uh, complete silence and how do they do it it's hard for us humans to imagine and I heard a podcast on NPR once on deafness and there was a, a woman on the panel that Talked, uh, I think she had been deaf from birth and then had had an operation and was able to hear. And when she said, you know, I'm addicted to silence. And I don't think I'd ever heard anybody say that they were addicted to silence before. But, you know, I really resonated. I said, I'm addicted to silence, too. How many of you are addicted to maybe addiction is not the right word. How many of you crave silence? Yeah. Thank you for the, the hands. Uh, so I'm in, I'm in good company. When we, when we walk in the Azendo, which I hope we'll be able to do soon, I saw, I saw two people in the Zendo this morning, in the Zendo rectangle, there were two people. Was that you, Chris, and uh, it wasn't, and Drew. Okay, yeah, that was really nice to see two people in there. Usually it's this empty room. Anyway, when you walk in the Zendo, you, you usually, your, your ears detect silence. Uh, this conventional silence that our ears pick up. But then there's another silence too. Well, there's, I suppose, many different silences, but there's a deep silence that we can experience also. And I think most of us have probably experienced that from time to time. It's rare, at least for me, it's rare, but uh, it's a deep silence that isn't just that's experienced by all of our senses, not just our ears. It sort of brings to mind the Heart Sutra that says no seeing, no hearing, no smelling, no tasting, no touching, no thinking. That kind of silence. 
And in this silence, even though we do, you know, our senses do continue working really, uh, even thoughts are being produced, but when we're in this kind of a silence, those don't seem to disturb it. You know, we still feel deep silence, even though there may be noise around us. Now, Katagiri Roshi, who wrote uh, Returning to Silence, one of my favorite books, calls this deep silence, no sound. And to him, experiencing no sound is to experience what he calls the vastness of existence. This vastness of existence is a limitless space permeated by vast stillness. If we didn't have this vast stillness and this vast silence, uh, our world would come to a halt. There couldn't be any movement. We just, everything would just be frozen. So uh, silence and the stillness are an important part of us and, and our whole universe, our whole world. Sometimes it's said that like, in all of us, there resides a place of stillness, uh, stillness and silence, or maybe sometimes underneath all of our, of our noise and our, uh, our demands and our cravings and, and our passions. Underneath all of that is this silent place that, that, we, can, that we can retreat to and, and we can touch it supposedly whenever we want to, but it takes a lot of training to get to where we can touch this uh, in the midst of, of chaos. But, you know, this concept of this being uh, somewhere in us or sort of underneath, maybe underneath something is this place is, is a little bit of a little bit of a difficult concept to have, you know, unless you think there's some little gland somewhere in your body that's secreting sil silence and somehow it doesn't get put in the medical books because it's just too woo-woo or something. But I, I like the way, I, I just heard this yesterday, a, a video of Shohaka Okamura, Okamura talking about Buddha nature. And actually that's what I'm talking about, isn't it? I'm talking about Buddha nature when I'm talking about this place of deep silence and and stillness that is synonymous with our Buddha nature. So I heard Shohaku talking about it when he was here giving a class. And this was a video that Mark Bikowski made. And um, I saw it on the link that Tim Mosley sent around, Kim, Kim Mosley sent around, which pointed to uh, Mark's contributions to the Just This blog. So I put it out there on the uh, Discord, so you might want to look at that. Anyway, so I saw this video. And so what Shohaku said in this is that uh, his teacher, Sawaki Koto Roshi, said that we all have, uh, we all have Buddha nature, not that we don't have Buddha nature, but that we are Buddha nature and we are 100% Buddha nature. But he also said we're also 100% thief nature. And then he described thief nature. You can maybe guess what that is. That's our our grasping, our graspingness, our, uh, you know, desire for attention, our desire to be special, you know, all those things that are tied up with our ego, that's our, that's our thief nature. So we're 100% ego and we're 100% uh, Buddha nature. It doesn't quite add up. 
but it's perhaps a little better concept than thinking of it as being something inside of us or something underneath everything, but that we just completely are these, these things. And so depending on our activity or depending which is manifesting itself at the current moment, you know, is and some of us, uh, you know, the ego side is manifesting itself just about every moment, you know, and then, but then, uh, but we've got that other side that we can always, well, that is there for us. It's there for us if we can cultivate it. So silence, this was from the beginning of um, Thich Nhat Hanh's book, which is called Silence. It's a natural resource for me to go to, a whole book on silence. Uh, he starts his book off saying that silence is often described as the absence of sound, yet it's also a very powerful sound. So Paul Simon knew this, of course. So he wrote a song called The Sound, sound of Silence, Sound of Silence. And Thich Nhat Hanh mentioned a story uh, which I had not was not aware of, but uh, about Niagara Falls. He said that in 2014, due to the polar vortex, it was so cold up in the Northeast part of the country that uh, Niagara Falls froze and stopped falling. And I don't know how many of you have been to Niagara Falls. I, I went there a few years ago and uh, I actually grew up not that far from there, but uh, Niagara Falls is an incredibly a powerful, powerful place, and the sound is just deafening. And so to imagine what things must have sounded like when it stopped falling is, is kind of awesome. Actually, I, I looked this up on Wikipedia and found out that Thich Nhat Hanh wasn't completely right. The whole falls didn't stop. It was just the American side, which is maybe half of the, but still, it, it, it must have been, been an awesome um, experience for those that heard it, you know. So the louder the sound, the more the noise, the more chaotic the life, the more capability there is to uh, cultivate deep silence. And, and this um, silence kind of exists maybe on the edge, or we're more aware of it on the edge of, of loudness, like the Niagara Falls story of all of a sudden, uh, you know, stopping, stopping all that noise. So I had some nice experiences with silence when I used to go up to the Daivasatsu Zendu up in uh, the Catskills, uh, which I went to for a couple of years. It's a Rinzai temple. And they have a wonderful way of chanting. They chant with a great deal of energy. But one of the things that they like to chant, and it was in the, at Sishin, it was done every, a couple times a day, actually. They chant the Kanzion 10 verse um, sutra. It's not really 10 verses, it's really 10 lines, but it, it's a short. And we used to chant it here. I mean, we, mostly we chanted it in English, but uh, when we would chant it three times. So some of you probably remember that. We chant it three times and we'd get faster each time. But at Daivasasu, they chant it 21 times and they get faster and faster and faster and they get louder and louder and louder. So by the time they get to the 21st verse, it's really loud. And then boom, it just stops. And you can actually feel this, this 
this incredible silence. And they let it go on for a while, you know, maybe a minute. Uh, I never wanted it to stop, but then it would stop and they'd chant a very gentle um, chant in, in, uh, in English. So, but that was, a, that was a profound experience for me to, to get to, to feel that a very loud silence. <laughs> it was very loud. And I, but I also notice in my own sitting sometimes that when I'm, my mind wanders off, you know, as it does, as it is want to do, and, and then it comes back, you know, I come back to my breath. Sometimes I'll get just a little whiff of that kind of silence, not even a second, not, you know, a moment, whatever a moment is. I mean, it's just a moment of it, a, a, just a whiff. It's enough to keep me wanting to come back. And I don't know if any of you ever uh, experience that same thing. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's, it's a hint. And I couldn't talk about silence without, without mentioning what I think is the most beautiful expression of it that I can think of. And this is from the GGU Zamai, which we also used to chant back in the old days when we were in the Zendo. For a while, we were chanting it once a week. Um, and this is the part that uh, uh, has always uh, stuck and meant a lot to me. Each moment of Zazen is equally wholeness of practice, equally wholeness of realization. This is not only practice while sitting, it is like a hammer striking emptiness. Before and after its exquisite peel permeates everywhere. So for me, I, I don't know why, well, maybe I know why that's such a touching and a deeply, deeply affecting uh, image that the, um, uh, the hammer striking emptiness and that exquisite peel. I think that it's so affecting because it is so beyond any kind of conceptualization. You know, there's just no way <laughs> to put this into any words or to uh, have a concept in your mind of a hammer striking emptiness. And I think that's why it's so magical because we can't, we, it's like a koan, you know, it just, we just give up. We can't, we can't conceptualize it. So we just let it, let it ring inside of us somehow. So I hope before I die that I get to hear the peel, the exquisite peel. And I hope that I know that I'm hearing it. Maybe I'm already hearing it. I just don't know it, you know, but anyway, the hammer is striking emptiness. You know, I, I was uh, very moved by Tim's talk last week, and uh, I kind of drafted onto it when I started preparing this talk, and uh, that his talk uh, came around to emptiness, which many talks seem to come around to. And I think I had the last word of his talk when I uh, repeated something I'd heard from a teacher not too long ago about emptiness. and that I, struck me as uh, helpful and true because he said that this teacher said that emptiness means that in any moment, and I guess we could say in any place, anything can happen. 
And, you know, that explains a lot. That explains all our anxiety, why we all, or many of us, do you have to deal with, with anxiety and why we come up with all kinds of fixed ideas to make us self, ourselves feel safe? Because when anything can happen, we're pretty vulnerable. Uh, it would appear that we are pretty vulnerable and we need to build a shell around ourselves, protect ourselves. So no wonder we create so many fixed ideas and no wonder we make so much noise. You know, we have to make a lot of noise to keep this scary stuff at bay or at least deafen ourselves so we don't have to think about it. And it's no wonder that there's a lot of people in the world, maybe not in this room so much, that are really scared of silence, maybe even terrified of silence. I mean, there are people that can't sit still for a minute, you know, because silence is scary. Silence is, it brings to mind death, right? There's nothing more still and silent than, than death. And it brings to mind loneliness, you know, loneliness, pretty quiet. So no wonder people are, are, um, are scared of it. It's usually not a very good thing to face children with. Children shouldn't have to be around a lot of silence because they aren't able to, to handle that, that scariness. But learning to bear silence, learning to sit still with it, which I have to say was never a problem for me. I never had that kind of fear for some reason. And from the moment I started sitting, I, I liked it. I, I liked being with silence. And, and maybe that's true of many of you too. But I imagine there's some of you that, that had to struggle a bit and had to uh, you know, make yourself sit down and, and experience this scary thing, kind of as if you were you know, facing, I don't know, what the <laughs> death, loneliness, facing those, those uh, perceptions um, of those things, which our, our society certainly helps us be afraid of. You know, that's why in order to sell things, people have to make a lot of noise. So um, we grow up in a lot of noise. But I think that most of us here have learned that by sitting still, that sitting still has incredible rewards because when we can sit still, with our fears, we can make friends. We can make friends with the death. We can make friends even with our own death, you know, and we can make friends with loneliness. And after they say we all are really basically alone. So it's a good thing to make friends with it because it's very much a reality just as much as death is a reality in everybody's life. And uh, sitting in silence, we learn to, uh, appreciate the myriad possibilities that we experience in this, in this emptiness, in this world where everything, anything can happen. So a world of all possibilities and a world of total connection that we're totally connected and we're totally a part of, of this world. So this vastness, this vastness of existence that category called it, we can, we can again, we can touch on that. We can taste it a little bit. 
and uh, maybe in some moments we can even go deeper into it and our complete connection to the existence and to everybody else. And the interesting thing about this, the amazing thing about this, that if we can make friends with those feelings of loneliness and death and fear of death and and, uh, and fully experience uh, our, our complete connection to all of it, then we have nothing to feel vulnerable about. So in this um, experience of sitting with silence, sitting in silence, we uh, also learn that we are not so vulnerable as we think we are and that there isn't any, anything that can happen to us that we can't, that we can't handle. <laughs> of course, we don't always feel that way, but at least we have a little bit of, of um, exposure, exposure to it. You know, one thing Tim talked about last week that touched me a lot was, and I think touched others also, was uh, talking about soil, soil being the source of, life you know or one of the i'm not I'm, I'm probably misquoting him but that's how i heard it anyway and um i like to think of deep silence also as soil as soil because out of it grows uh ideas and uh, possibilities grow out of it and we can feel a flow. We can feel a flow coming out of uh, the soil, or out of maybe thinking of a of a spring that comes uh, enters out into um, you know. There's a couple springs down on Lady Bird Lake that are kind of nice to see. I think springs are always so amazing because even on a dry day, you just see all this water gushing, and it's like, where is it coming from? It seems endless. Of course, springs do dry up, but you know, uh, there's this feeling of this endless uh, flow, and we we get that. We we see that when we can be in deep silence, and when we're sitting together in the zendo, which we'll be doing soon, I hope, we get to create silence together. That's really powerful. We create silence together, and we share the silence. We get to sit there and. It's to me, uh, I don't know, I've never, well, I'm sure there must be some exceptions to this, but I feel like I've never felt lonely in the Zendo because there's such a feeling in that silence of connection to everyone else that's in there, even people you don't know, it doesn't matter. Even people you don't like, but it doesn't matter. There's this deep connection and there's not any words there to, you know, to, to interrupt um, that feeling. So um, I, I didn't wanna make a long talk today because I wanted to be finished uh, in time for the uh, Branching Streams Conference, which starts a half an hour from now. And I realized that my talk has been mostly kind of impractical stuff. Uh, maybe maybe inspirational, but not particularly grounded in any advice or anything like that. So I wanted to end it by uh, reading something that is, I think, uh, helpful uh, from Larry Rosenberg's uh, book, Breath by Breath. And he has the, the last chapter in this book is called 
uh, breathing into silence. And I'll just read this half a page, and which I, I think is full of, well, I enjoyed it anyway. Meditators often ask what to do when they get to silence. We typically have various agendas. Sometimes we are still basically afraid of it. We want to taste it briefly and get out. Other times we sit in silence full of anticipation, waiting for something to happen. We view the silence as a door to something else. It is a door to the unconditioned, but if we attempt to use this door to get there, it stays shut. If we are looking too hard for something special to happen, silence will collapse. This has happened to me a lot. We can also cause it to disappear by making it into a personal experience, naming it, weighing it, evaluating it, comparing it to other experiences we've had, wondering what we will tell our friends about it, how we will shape it into a poem. What we need to do instead is just surrender to it, allow it to be there. It sounds like it must be just a break from real living, but that is a failure of language. Silence is much more than that. So what I advise meditators to do when they encounter silence is absolutely nothing. Bathe in it, let it work on you. The experience will make you realize what an inadequate word silence is for what I'm talking about. It is actually a highly charged state full of life. It couldn't be more alive. The energy in it is subtle and refined, but extremely powerful. It doesn't have to apologize to action. I had one other quote too, and this is from this is from Katagiri in his other book called You Have to Say Something. He says, if you beat a drum to assert yourself, no matter how long you hit the drum, the universe will not respond to you. Your expectations kill the possibility. But if you practice with no expectation, the universe responds. That brings me to the end of my talk. So if anybody has anything they want to say, um, Wendy. I, I was going to jump in. I, I really appreciate hearing you speak. And, um, and also just you saying that you get nervous, like that is such a, um, I don't know, that made me feel very warmly towards you. Um, and something that stood out to me when you asked who else was addicted to silence, my brain immediately went to like phobia, like who has a phobia of silence, which is how I feel. Um, and you kind of got to it a little bit later. And I thought about it a little bit more because I'm not, I'm not uncomfortable with silence in the Zendo or silence when I'm by myself, but it's, it's silence in connection with others, like conversationally. And so that that's really, I, I don't really have a formulated thought about it, but it's something that when I saw that this was going to be your talk, I was curious about. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad you, uh, you voiced that. I think uh, one of the things I really, uh, yeah, I had that exact same phobia. Um, and I suppose to some extent still have it. But um, when I first got into practice, uh, the most wonderful thing about this practice was that I started to learn that you don't have to say anything. 
I mean, I know a categories book said you have to say something, but you, you don't have to always be saying something. You can just be quiet and you can listen. And even with another person, you know, uh, you can. So uh, that was just so valuable uh, to learn. And uh, I'm glad, though, that you're not you're not afraid of silence in the Zendo and, and uh, that. But that that is, uh, yeah, that's that's something. Yeah, that's a big part of our society. I think is is uh, uh, somehow we learn as kids that you're you're supposed to keep keep the conversation going because we don't have another way to connect, do we? We we don't know another way. We're not taught uh, um, that there's a connection there. It's just there, and and. So words are our connection, uh, and we feel um, obligated to keep that connection going. But I think even people that you know aren't Buddhists or never meditated in their life, I think they they can even understand sometimes silence if if we do it with um, real peacefulness. Anyway, thanks for bringing that up. That, that's, uh, I think, important to a lot of people. I saw a flash of a hand. I saw a yellow hand. Uh, oh, oh, Bruce, yeah, yeah, hi. Well, it's interesting you're saying how th this idea of words being the way to connect and, and the impulse to fill a silence or, or to... Uh, to, to use words to connect when I've found in say work periods and retreats here that the level of communication and connection that can happen when, when you're instructed not to talk is, is really kind of amazing. And, and not just say in special settings, like now we're working or now we're in retreat, but um, just in regular ser services or, or periods of zazen, if, if say I'm doan and something's not right, but I can't get up to deal with it, I can make eye contact. And then, and then it's that game of like, if you know the other person well enough, if you know the situation well enough, like somehow in a moment, you can communicate without a single word exactly what's, what's in your head. Um, and, and, then see, say retreats, for example, are a way to to practice with that, you know, and and it's not always exact, but then speaking with words isn't always exact either. I think it, I think there's this illusion that it's more exact, um, but you don't know necessarily what's being communicated and how much of our spoken communication is clarifying the previous spoken communication, which didn't work. The way it was intended to. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's. I, I appreciate that aspect of practice that you you get to see that silence doesn't mean you're not connecting, and it doesn't mean that that things aren't being conveyed. Um, so yeah, it's, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, that very well well put. Yeah, I think words get in the way a lot. There's our tone of voice that, you know, like you said, unintended, you don't even know that you're, maybe you're in a bad mood and someone takes offense, you know, like, oh, why are they telling me what to do? You know, <laughs> where eye contact would have done that without the, uh, 
histronics, you know, so yeah. Thank you. Just think about those birds building a nest together with no words. I, I, I love that. <laughs> and, they, and then these nests come out so perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> Marco. Hi, Pat. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. The um, I wanted to just bring up, um, I guess, just following up from, well, the talks topic, but also just what Bruce said about you know the uh, things that happened at the zen center uh, my first retreat i think was my first sashin i heard the expression be silent with your eyes mm. and it's really interesting to to try that on and then it also when you get together with a group of people and you're silent with your eyes it means you don't look at each other <laughs> a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with Course, right this feeling of especially if you're new to practice and you don't really know um, that that's what people are doing that people are trying to be silent with their eyes <laughs> that it's very off-putting because it feels like nobody likes me nobody's looking you know we look to each other for affirmation so much to you know to make ourselves feel safe like you were saying um, so it's interesting because even like with the when you go into like a like a work day like Bruce mentioned like a, like working together, how much if you're not going to use your voice, you'll find these other ways to communicate, and that almost seem like you know okay now what if I don't use my voice what if I don't use my voice and then what if I don't use my eyes either and if you keep kind of taking away like the Heart Sutra does, <laughs> then you know what's left. And I think that's the hammer striking emptiness that you described, right? But you don't get to you don't get to see that unless you you go through it, and it requires almost um, for for many of us who um, for whom silence is, you know, a little scary, especially when we're used to being able to communicate verbally, um, to go through that feeling of um, something being it's like something's off but but when you let the silence kind of roll around there's a settling there can be a settling of course if you don't know that's what's happening you know um that can be off-putting so zen centers around the world i'd say mostly the zen centers in the west not in places in asia as much because it's part more part of a culture but they're constantly struggling with this question of how do you be welcoming and how do you impart something about this wondrous practice? You know, so like I remember at one point Green Gulch decided they needed to have a brochure that they handed to people when they first came. It's like explaining why people aren't looking at you. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting um, koan that, that we as a community are always it always comes up every time that there's um that we get together and there's people who are not familiar with those forms so thank you very much if you have any any thoughts on how to how that welcoming process or feeling unwelcome or you know how that feels um in your own experience with not just azc but at divosats or other retreat centers Well, I, you know, I came up in Zen. I was my my uh, first Zen practice with Rinzai Zen. They're they're a little bit more. They're less worried about that. 
you know, they just do it. <laughs> and uh, so, but somehow I, I got, I didn't ever take offense. Uh, I think some, probably some people do. That's probably why there are less people that practice Rinzai, a lot less people I think that practice Rinzai than practice Soto Zen, because it's not as warm and fuzzy. Um, but maybe people like me that maybe, well, I, I don't want to speculate, but uh, yeah, uh, I think that's, that's where I learned so, so deeply that it was okay to be quiet and it was okay to sort of detach from, uh, from warm and fuzzy interactions with people and it was okay and uh, it doesn't work for everybody, I know. And I and I do like our warm our warm and fuzziness. I and I, I guess I I now feel more of a need to be warm and welcoming to people uh, because as a whole institution we don't project that other more detached way. I don't know. If this, anyway, that's I don't know if that's that helpful or, or not. And I know it's very difficult when you're the head teacher to have to deal with this this kind of this kind of thing. And after I got more immersed immersed in the Soto uh, tradition, when I go back to a Rinzai retreat, I do have these feelings like, why is everybody so cold? Like, and, and they don't even bow. You know, we bow to each other when we pass at a retreat. You know, we bow each to each other when we pass in silence. But they don't even do that. And it, 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 you know, now I, now I really feel, I really feel that and it doesn't feel good. <laughs> I think that's maybe one of the reasons I don't really go anymore. Drew. Um, so, so one question with regard to silence has fascinated me for a while is why, um, you're talking about the communication between the herons that's wordless and i notice i don't even communicate kind of with myself without words like speech is something that only <laughs> because of other people but i talk to myself <laughs> to let myself know how i'm doing which just seems very very strange like and it feels like there's kind of behind that some sort of insecurity of like there's this silent, like kind of maybe more subtle, like animal communication of like feelings in the body. And then there's a part of me that wants to have words and speak to myself. And it feels like there's a lot of kind of insecurity in that way of relating to myself, like wanting to have it nailed down. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about this weird conundrum. Wow, yeah, that, that's a wonderful thing to bring up. Uh, do you actually talk out loud to yourself? Because I do. It's a terrible habit, and I'm always afraid someone's going to hear me muttering to myself. <laughs> you do then? Oh, I feel so much. <laughs> I've got company. Yeah. But even just thoughts still. What? Even thought. Like that's. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I heard, I know what you were getting at. I just wondered, wanted to ask you that. Right. Give you a hard time. Uh, 
Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, what was it you said that you feel? Yeah, it, it, you're thinking of it kind of like a, a a kind of a fixed idea kind of thing. Like it, it, you said something that made me think that you were sort of fixating things and it, it to make yourself feel more comfortable. I think that there is some of that, like, uh, right, that, like there's this kind of like unseeable, like, like there's the subtle body communication that's informing me of my feelings. And then there's like this high level, like discrete, like cut and dry, analytical, verbal part of me. And it's scary to give that part up because it feels more under control or something. Yeah, yeah, wow. I appreciate your saying that. It's helping me be a little bit more understanding of the kind of way I talk to myself too. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I don't know that I have anything helpful to say, but I think that that is very, a very astute observation. Thanks. Mary, I think you had your hand up uh, for a while and I didn't see it. Yeah, um, I just wanted to share something that's parallel, which is you know, I did some early training in a more psychoanalytic way of doing psychotherapy. And that's not how I pra practice now, but um, you know, that's the, the, uh, the you, you allow the patient to have a lot of silence in order to have their projections come forward. And they learn a lot about themselves if they have the capacity for that. And, but in recent years, the fields moved towards a more relational place to help people um, who aren't capable of holding that uh, ambiguity to feel safe enough to form an alliance to be able to gradually move towards something like that. Um, so they say, how do you meet people where they're at? And given their capacity is, I think, a parallel between how does the Zen community meet uh, a very diverse community of people who range in their capacity for tolerating that ambiguity um, versus people who have had whatever experience that allows them to be able to do that from the, from the get-go. And there's just such a range. Um, being sensitive to that, I think, has been what the field has moved towards, at least for the majority of my field. But there's still dyed-in-the-world psychoanalytic people who begin sessions, they maintain silence, and they really are very minimalistic because they believe that's where you have to go. So mm -hmm. it's, it's the parallel is just striking to me. But they're, they're, they're both aimed at the same, a, a similar goal of how do you, how do you um, at least initially, um, study the self? to forget the self, <laughs> in Zen, but in, in, obviously in, in uh, psychology, it's, it's just to study the self. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to share that observation because I, it is so similar. Um, but I think the issue is how do we meet people so that we can connect so that they can benefit from this? And that's, I think, the real question that we share. Yeah. Well, those are, that's, uh, that's interesting, that parallel that exists in psychotherapy. And uh, I think one thing that's always important, maybe not so much in your line of work, but in a Zen center, is that at least 
everybody is treated the same. And if we're consistent in our message, I think that can be helpful too. I mean, if people feel that, so that people don't feel like they're being singled out or they're being picked on. Of course, when someone newly walks in the door, they don't really know what's going on and maybe they walk out the door and don't ever come back. So um, yeah, it's, I know Rich has brought this up um, too, you know, that uh, what do we do to make new people feel okay about being here and not feel, uh, like there's something wrong with them because we're, we've got these rules that they don't yet know about. <laughs> yeah, but thanks, thanks, Mary. Oh gosh, well it's almost uh, it's almost eleven, so um, that that kind of worked out uh, pretty well as far as being. Uh, I don't know how many people have. Uh, signed up to go to the branching streams thing, but I want to go to it. I'm probably not going to go right at the very beginning. I think it's okay to go late. So, <sighs> um, yeah. Um, so it was, uh, yes, Michael. Oh, right. Uh, it's time to do the, uh, the no, um, speak. Choro has had her hand raised sometime. Oh, Choro. You had your hand. I'm so sorry. I didn't see it. It's okay. I wasn't <laughs> going to say anything. And, and then something moved me to uh, thank you for uh, speaking about silence as I think you said the loudness of silence at one point, one something things, yeah. the <laughs> like silence. that. Um, <laughs> and I just wanted to very briefly share, cause I don't want to hold people up if they want to go to branching streams that uh, your experience at Daibosatsu reminded me of a retreat I did where we ended by doing something I, I wasn't used to doing. We chanted ho, ho, ho at the top of our lungs, which is the Japanese word for dharma. Ho, and that's what monks who are out begging on begging rounds chant really, really loud. And we, and we ended, there was a signal to end. And just as we ended, the local uh, town hall or something was ringing their bells for for noon and it was going bong 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 <laughs> and so our voices ended and this bell was ringing we were all like where is that coming from what is that? but it was it kind of sh it was like a shattering experience of a kind of silence it wasn't we who were making the sound but yet i think so you heard the exquisite feel from the hammer striking emptiness. <laughs> it was the Rye New York firehouse. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's great. 